Lives of the Unconscious. A podcast on psychoanalysis and psychotherapy. Episode 17. Repression, Rationalization, Sublimation. The Mature Defense Mechanisms. In the last episode, we heard that defense mechanisms are essential for survival and yet can also block psychic development. For example, coping and dealing with a disease can only be successful if the person isn't in complete denial about the fact of the disease, but also when a person always projects the undesirable parts of themselves onto other people, such as the boss in the example from the last episode who couldn't face up to this part of himself. It is possible as a consequence that he will experience others withdrawing from him time and again because they don't like being assailed by him, thereupon reinforcing his vulnerability and the psychological defenses yet further. A vicious cycle. Such relationship dynamics could also come about in a therapy between patient and therapist. It is for this reason that the interpretation of the defense, i.e., the understanding and resolution of the defense mechanisms, is important in psychoanalysis. However, it is not the case that the analyst tries, like a public prosecutor in court, to depict the patient's statements as a defense and to wrest an admission from them. On that score alone, this wouldn't be a good therapeutic approach, for the therapist must always bear the protective function of the defense in mind and should never simply snatch the patient's defenses away in order to arrive at some higher truth. The following very simple example can demonstrate for us what a defense and its interpretation may look like over the course of psychoanalytic therapy. It concerns a patient who is suffering from depression. Over the course of the hour, he talks about his colleagues with whom he is working on a group project for his studies. The patient says, Yesterday we wanted to meet to discuss our project, and everyone brought their work. As we were exchanging ideas, I noticed that everyone else was much farther along with their work than me. I have the feeling that they are all much faster in thinking and have more energy and... The patient takes a short break and then says, Well, that's just the way it is. Everyone has their strengths and weaknesses. There's nothing that can be done about it. It probably has something to do with the depression, which also causes mental blocks. Depression blocks the wiring in the brain. That's why it's difficult to think. What is the defense here? In the first part, the patient describes an unpleasant, perhaps shameful, or humiliating experience with his colleagues. He is not as fast as the others. It might be that a painful feeling arose in him while telling the story, as in, I'm stupid, slow, not efficient. He pauses, then he qualifies what he has just said with some sensible insights. This also helps him put the unpleasant feelings into perspective, basically saying to himself, no reason to feel bad. Yesterday, I was at my weakest. Another time, I will be at my best. And with depression, it is just hard to be efficient. No reason to feel bad. This, by the way, would be an example of a functional defense, which in the case of depression is usually already quite fragile. The patient is also quite right in what he says. 
In a normal conversation, say among friends, we would probably respond to this last point and try to reassure and motivate our friend. It is, of course, true. Everyone has strengths and weaknesses, and the depression and the dopaminergic system are certainly reasons why the patient cannot keep up with the others or has the feeling that he is not as good as the others. If, during the therapy session, the patient is completely devastated by this incident, the psychoanalyst may also behave with this in mind and, first of all, reinforce the patient a bit. But she will also try to cautiously put him in touch with the feeling he has rejected. Perhaps at the end of his account, the patient may not even realize how humiliated he actually felt by the experience with his colleagues. With the help of the defense mechanism, the bad feeling has been neutralized. While at the same time, the patient may feel depressed on this day, tired or annoyed, seemingly without reason. The therapist could say, for example, I can imagine how humiliating that must have been for you yesterday with your colleagues. She addresses the feelings linked to the incident, and by giving voice to them, she is also saying, it can be talked about, this is something that can be given room here. Perhaps the patient is receptive to this, eases up the defense a bit, as it were, and opens the door a little to the rejected feelings. Then the patient offers an answer. Yes, that's right, he says. That kind of thing is always unpleasant. One would rather not have the feeling that they are the worst and the slowest. That isn't nice for anybody. To which the therapist replies, Perhaps that is why it is also important for you to distance yourself from this feeling. It is so unpleasant that you would prefer to get rid of it immediately, even here. That last thing that the therapist said is, in the strictest sense, an interpretation of the defense. She addresses the patient's defense, their tendency to distance themselves from the unpleasant feelings, quite impersonally, say by speaking in the one form. One would rather not have the feeling. She is not confrontational. The mode of speech is rather designed to offer the patient the opportunity to talk about the unpleasant feeling, and if that is not possible, then at least maybe to talk about the fact that it is not possible. At the end of the hour, the patient may become aware of how humiliated he actually was by the incident, or he may become aware of how little he can endure such hurtful incidents, how quickly he has to distance himself from such feelings, that is to say, must defend himself. Such awareness, which oftentimes must first grow over a longer period of time in therapy, opens up greater degrees of psychological freedom. Perhaps the patient will succeed in accepting the hurtful feelings more, and not to feel dejected and exhausted in the evening for seemingly no apparent reason. The defense mechanism that the patient in our example used is, by the way, called intellectualization, and, as we will hear later, rationalization. In place of the unpleasant feelings, the patient has offered a reasonable insight, and thereby distanced himself from the emotional aspect of what happened. Intellectualization is counted among the so-called mature defense mechanisms. In other words, defense strategies that are acquired and cultivated late in psychological development. Intellectualization is, in a sense, a high achievement in psychic development. The unpleasant feeling is not abruptly rejected and blocked out as with denial, but rather qualified 
through clever and well-thought-out insights. The principle of early defense mechanisms, about which we spoke in the last episode, is, in psychoanalytic terminology, based on psychological splitting. An unpleasant part of experience is split off, and is, as with denial, hidden from conscious perception. Most mature defense mechanisms, on the other hand, are based on the principle of repression. The person does not have to split off a part of himself, thereby grossly distorting reality. Instead, they push it out of the light and into the shadow, all the while remaining, as it were, in the same psychic space. There is a whole range of more mature defense mechanisms, some of which have made their way into everyday language. For example, so-called rationalization. Rationalization means that the reasons for a particular behavior are subsequently warranted with something seemingly plausible, as in the following example, which you may recognize in yourselves. You go shopping in a fashion store and have found fantastic shoes, which admittedly are very expensive. They are indeed quite expensive. In fact, too expensive. Maybe in this case you should rather take the cheaper shoes. Or even better, none at all. If you anyway decide to buy the expensive shoes and feel a few stomach pains as you swipe out your credit card, then it is likely that just after paying, you will feel the urge to find all manner of good reasons for buying the shoes. You have wanted shoes like this for such a long time. You really need some. You can wear them for your girlfriend's wedding, etc. If you have a companion while shopping, you might explain this to him or her, in the hope that he or she will agree with you, absolving your conscience. In social psychology, this urge for justification is also called justification of a fort. Rationalizations are based on a very similar principle to intellectualization. One could also say it is a special case of intellectualization. Once again, an unpleasant feeling is replaced by rational insights. The emotional aspect is neutralized. The opposite of intellectualization and rationalization is so-called affectualization. Here, the unpleasant feeling is not replaced by a rational thought, but rather by another feeling. One also speaks of so-called counter-emotions. That is, so to speak, fighting fire with fire. As, for example, when someone speaks of things that are in actuality very sad or laden with fear, all the while constantly laughing or making jokes. This has been observed, for example, in people speaking of truly horrific childhood experiences, such as wartime events, as Cecile Lutz has investigated in a study on the generation of German children of war. Some forms of depression dress themselves up in the guise of a permanent cheerfulness and merriment, which, however, appears a bit artificial, exaggerated and dramatized. Here one sometimes speaks of larval or mass depressions, that is, feelings of deep sadness and defeat which, like larvae in a cocoon, are enveloped in apparent happiness. More often than not, this form of cheerfulness can change suddenly, as in under the influence of alcohol, whereby the depressive side gains the upper hand. This is frequently the case with so-called class clowns in school, or with famous comedians, 
Perhaps you can think of some examples. Whereas a counter-thought is employed in intellectualization, and a counter-emotion in effectualization, a counter-action, as it were, comes into play in yet a further defense mechanism. For example, when, after a night of heavy drinking, people feel the need the next day to make particularly healthy food, drink carrot juice, to refrain from a pill despite the headache, tidy up the apartment, or do some sports. The healthy actions serve to make up for the harmful excess of the previous day. This process is called the defense mechanism of undoing. In order to avoid certain feelings, such as a bad conscience, for having put one's own body through so much the day before, a series of actions are now carried out that are supposed to undo the damage that has occurred. To a certain extent, this is also rational. It is indeed quite sensible to do something good for the body if one has previously done it harm. More often than not, however, this undoing overshoots the mark or has mainly symbolic value. Oftentimes, it is about feelings of guilt and bad conscience. Undoing and other similar mechanisms play a central role in some forms of obsessive-compulsive disorders, for example. Many obsessive-compulsive acts turn out to be such forms of undoing, even if the connection to the original feeling, or wish, is for the most part difficult to recognize, and is the subject of longer therapeutic work. In the case of obsessive-compulsive acts, one also speaks of magical thinking, which on the other hand, however, refers to somewhat earlier forms of thinking. A compulsive act, say, counting up to a particular number, is, as if by magic, supposed to preclude certain bad occurrences. When something bad has been thought, obsessive-compulsive patients have to think specific counterthoughts, or perform certain rituals in order to feel better again. To a certain extent, we all know this. When we knock on wood three times to make something happen or not happen, or when we shake our heads in a very expressive way after having had a scandalous or malicious thought, magical thinking is perhaps most familiar to us from our childhood. It is typical for children to be a little obsessive-compulsive at times. For example, not touching certain cobblestones while walking through the city or avoiding certain numbers, or a childlike form of undoing. When a child gets angry with their sibling and out of anger hits them, only to then give them a kiss right afterwards, as if that could thereby undo the evil deed. By the way, defense mechanisms need not always be something that only takes place within a single individual. Some forms of defense are reflected in so-called psychosocial arrangements, as, for example, in the way in which the relationship of some couples takes shape. Here there are typical forms of interpersonal arrangements, which also have a defensive function. Oftentimes, two people come together, one of which has a rather narcissistic character, meaning dominant and self-absorbed, striving for recognition, while the other has rather dependent personality traits, that is, subordinating themselves to others, passing on decisions to them, while readily letting others take care of them. The relationship is, as it were, well attuned to the character traits of both parties. With this arrangement, both can avoid something as well, 
the narcissistic partner need not be confronted with someone who challenges their domain and their need for recognition. The dependent partner need not be confronted with their fears of responsibility and autonomy. Behind this, by the way, is the autonomy-dependency conflict, which we have heard about in the episode on psychological conflicts. But often enough, this is only the outer appearance of a relationship, and the supposedly independent partner is in fact quite dependent, the supposedly inferior within the relationship quite dominant. The relationship makes it possible to uphold the defenses outwardly, while oftentimes internally living out what has been rejected. The independent partner can yield to a degree of dependency in themselves, while the dependent partner can exercise autonomy. There are still many other interesting forms of defense that cannot all be addressed. We would like to mention one last defense mechanism, which Freud considered to be the highest form of psychological defense, so-called sublimation, which comes from Latin and means refinement. Here, unpleasant feelings and unacceptable desires are warded off in such a way that they are transformed into creative or artistically valuable products that allow for their own form of satisfaction. This is the case, for example, when we play. In a game, we can give free rein to desires and feelings that would hardly be acceptable outside of the game, or in athletic ambition, whereas the desire to always win and be the best does not fit well with our normal social life. It can, in the field of sports, spur us on to outstanding achievements. In many cases, though not all, a person's career choice is connected to such processes of sublimation, and behind career aspirations is actually the inclination to work out certain issues in our life story. The physician, who is in fact afraid of illness or death, is only a rather simplified but quite frequent example. It once again becomes apparent that defense has two faces, one that inhibits development, and one that makes certain developments possible in the first place. Many psychoanalytic authors agree, without defense, especially in the form of sublimation, art and cultural achievement would not even be possible. Even if art and culture cannot, of course, be reduced to the process of psychic defense, they do develop within themselves their own quality and mean much more than merely the transformation of unpleasant feelings. As the psychoanalyst Donald Winnicott, for example, has pointed out in his work on the significance of play and creativity for human development. But we will hear more about that in another episode. This podcast is written and produced by Cecile Lutz and Jakob Müller. Translated and read by Solomon Lawrence.